everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Cubs Weekly Podcast presented by Wintrust, proud legacy partner of the Chicago Cubs and exclusive home of Cubs Checking. Open online today at Wintrust.com slash Cubs Weekly. I'm Tony Andracki, joined by Bruce Levine and a man who will need no introduction to Cubs fan, Kerry Wood. Thank you so much for joining us, Kerry. Absolutely, guys. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Good to see yeah. you. Even good to see you, Bruce. <laughs> Yeah, Bruce said, if you're watching the video version, Bruce has a couple of Emmys behind him. So I like the the little flex there. But, Kerry, we'll get right into this. Um, what have you been up to since you retired? I think Cubs fans are kind of eager to hear, like, what life is like for Kerry Wood now. And we know you're heavily involved in family time. But what kind of role does baseball still play in your life right now? Yeah, so I took some years off after I retired and, and just really enjoyed family and getting, getting back into the uh, – the swing of being home every day and, and parenting and being dad and being around. And, and so I, I really enjoyed that. We did quite a bit of traveling the first, you know, two or three, four years uh, post-retirement with the family and, and seeing the country and seeing the world. So I uh, really enjoyed that part of it. And, um, you know, kids are growing up. So like I was able to coach my son and his baseball team for a few years, four or five years and uh, coach my daughter's basketball team for a few years and coaching currently coaching my youngest daughter's basketball team now. And, um, you know, doing, doing that stuff. And, and obviously, um, you know, that takes a lot of our time, but I'm, I'm, uh, currently in my, I'll be in my second year this year of coaching up at the high school, uh, where I live. And so I'm helping out with the varsity team there and the pitchers and, um, just, you know, staying involved in the game as much as I can. What is coaching like for you? I mean, obviously you had this playing career at the highest level, but like now transferring to a coach, like that, what is that transition like? I mean, how do you, um, draw on your experiences to then teach kids this game. Yeah. So for, for me, it's just, it's like, you just, just like you said, I think it's, it's sharing experiences that I, I've had, um, you know, even regard, just not even at the big league or professional level. Like I, I, I was a high school player. I was 14. I was 15. I was 16. I was going through all the things those kids go through on a, uh, you know, normally all teenagers go through, but I was also playing baseball in a sport during high school. So uh, just being able to, you know, talk to them about my experiences and, and, Hey, I know what you're dealing with. And, and, uh, I remember when I was a kid as well, I remember when I was trying to make a varsity team and, and the pressures that, that come along with that. So just kind of, just from my experience, putting them at ease and, you know, in today's game, I think a lot, especially in the youth game, I think there's a lot of pressure on kids to, you know, go to private lessons and, and get better faster and throw harder, faster and, and, and all of these things. And so I think I just, I try to take a lot of that pressure off of them and, and remind them that it's a game and, and it's fun. And the reason we play this game is to have fun playing the game. And yeah, it's great to get better and, and to win and have success, but ultimately it's, uh, it's a short blip of their life that, that they want to look back on fondly and say, Hey, I really enjoyed that. I had a great experience and, and, you know, I had some good, some good mentors and some good teachers and coaches. That uh, segues perfectly into my next question, which would be, if you had to do the signings directly from high school over again, is there something different about it? I mean, do you, you feel you missed the college experience? All your maturity came directly out of high school and professional sports. What, uh, what are your thoughts about looking back on that? Yeah, you know, I don't think I would change it differently. I, I, I did always say I kind of missed that college experience. Um, but I, I, then I always follow that up with, but I got kind of a college experience by going through the minor league, which is living on your own, paying your own bills, finding your own food, doing those things without, without the classes. Um, certainly would have loved to have gotten, gotten that education, um, but I'm not sure I would have changed anything. And, and 
for me as a, as a, I mean, I was 17 when I got drafted and signed at 18 and, um, you know, who knows how, where I would have gone had I, had I gone to college and what bad decisions I would made, you know, being around other 18 and 19 year olds, right? Like I, I was thrown into the mix of pro ball and immediately was with guys that were 21, 22, 24. And so, you know, I was 19 years old in AAA and my first stint there and I was playing with guys that were married and had kids. So like I, I had a different kind of set of mentors built into me um, in, in early in my career. So I think that played a huge role in, in my, my ability to, to mature faster and, and just being around guys with experience. So I'm not sure I would change anything from the draft year. I think um, it was, <clears throat> I mean, it was lightning fast for me. I, I really didn't pitch for my high school team my sophomore and junior year. I, I pitched for my summer leagues. Um, primarily and so we had all had older guys on high school had seniors that had seniority so those guys were our pitchers but um I mean I played shortstop and and then played some third base in sophomore and junior year but um for the school team but I pitched I did majority of my pitching in the summer and and um you know it was just it happened so fast all of a sudden now I'm a senior I transfer schools and I'm the Friday night starter and um I knew there was in the summer league I knew some scouts had had been around and been to some of the games um I didn't find out until years later that the first one, I was 15 years old. My dad never actually told me that he was there. And I'm not even sure he showed up to watch me, but he saw me pitching in a game and then he started following us around. Uh, and I wasn't even aware of that till later. My dad never actually told me that till later. But um, so 15 was the first one I didn't know about. And then the next thing I know, I'm a senior, 17 years old. And there's, you know, there's 30, 30 scouts and cross checkers at every game I start. So it happened super fast for me. And so it, I look back on it as a super exciting time for me, my family, my friends, the, the school I was at. It was just, there was a lot of hype around it. We had, I had three other guys get drafted off that team into pro ball. Uh, one of them went and then two went to college. So it was, um, it was just a great experience. So I, I'm not sure I would change any of it. I do look back on it from the college standpoint saying I missed that experience. But again, I think I was thrown into um, a great circumstance and a great situation having older older players to be around you got a ton of money were you smart about it um yeah I was then I was super smart I went and bought a boat immediately when I when I signed <laughs> and then I and then I got the boat and I'm like oh I got to get a truck to pull it I don't even have anything to pull it with so um yeah I was smart I invested it I, I took care you know I did some stuff for my parents that I wanted to do uh bills and and things like that and then and then put the rest away and, and went to the minor leagues and lived like a you know, regular minor league player. Carry so I, like think, I like to think I was smart about it. <laughs> I mean, buying a boat would be smart. That'd be, if I got a check like that, that'd be the first thing I yeah. would do. So it doesn't get any smarter than that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, it, you know, I know that 20 strikeout game is obviously something so many people are familiar with, but for you, you know, you were so young when, when that game occurred, like how did your life change after that? And, you know, getting this kid K nickname and label, how did you kind of deal with that and, and kind of live up to that? And you're, you're kind of this celebrity at age 20, like how did that affect you? Yeah. I mean, so it, I was never wanted, wanted to be in front of the camera and do interviews and talk. And I did some of that in high school as the hype was happening and I just, I didn't like it. And, and then getting drafted and going through that whole, even, even hearing other players and teams talk about the bonus, you get the bonus baby label and the whole thing. And it just, it starts from the beginning. Um, you know, and then, you know, at that point in my, when I struck out 20, I was, it was my fifth start. I'm, I'm still trying to, obviously my feet are soaking wet. I'm still trying to just get them wet and, 
and figure out if I belong even in a clubhouse with these grown men that I've watched on TV. Like, do I even fit in this equation anywhere? Why am I here? Uh, I mean, Dave Wilder called me in AAA and said I was going to the big leagues. And I was like, I don't think I'm ready. You know, I, I told him that morning when he called, I, I, I'm not ready. And he had just blown away. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm telling you, you're going to the big leagues. I'm like, I don't know, man. <laughs> and so it was, it was, it was overwhelming, you know, and for me, again, I was, I had great locker mates. I had veteran players surrounding me. Um, but still that, un, that unsure feeling of, do I really belong at this level? This is the highest level the game has to offer to it. And I'm here and I've seen these guys playing on TV and, and now I'm teammates with them. And, and is this going to work out? Am I going to be able to do this? And then, you know, the fifth start happens. I strike out 20 and, and, you know, for me, that was the first time of like, all right, I can do this. I belong here. Um, you know, and, uh, but the, but the hype and the pressure that came after that was, I was 20 years old. You know, I didn't, I didn't see it as pressure at the time. I was just like, this is great. I'm going to go do it again. Next start. I did it once I can do it again, you know, and, and my next start, I think I struck at 13 and, and, uh, I remember walking off the mound after seven innings and I was kind of frustrated that I only got 13 and I'm, <laughs> so I just kind of, I kind of expected that. I kind of thought that's, that's the pitcher that I'm going to be. And that's the guy I'm going to be. And then, you know, the hype continued. And then the, the request for media, the request to go on Leno and Letterman. And I just, I turned all that stuff down. I just wasn't comfortable going on TV and talking about myself. And, and I'm still that way, but I, I think looking back on it now, there's, there was some pressure. I didn't feel it. I don't think I, I don't think I, you know, kept it inside and was like, Oh, I'm afraid to go to the, to the yard today. But um, I definitely shied away from the media stuff. I really just being 20 years old still, even after that game, I'm like, I want to fit in, you know, I, I want to fit in and just be part of the team and come to work and do my job and focus on what I got to do. There's so many things I need to work on. There's, I've got so far to go as an athlete and as a professional athlete to get to the level to stay here and compete and be consistent. Um, that sometimes I think the media requests and the commercial requests and all this stuff kind of got in the way of me being able to stay focused on my main job and what I was getting paid to do. So um, I think there was that pressure was there, but I don't think I fully took it in, it, it, especially my rookie year. I kind of enjoyed, enjoyed the, the ride. As a old time media guy that everyone knows I am, I was with you hand in hand and for a lot of that time. And um, the one thing that I'd like you to talk about is um, how, your personality with the media, talking to cameras and microphones like mine was altered because of the fact that you had injuries so early and uh, because it became a focal point where many people just asked you about your arm all the time. And it, and it got, I know being a friend of yours, it got really old. Yeah. So, I mean, so I think part of talking to the media and the cameras and the, and the, the microphones that part was easy because it wasn't live TV. There wasn't a pressure to me for me to deliver a certain message. It was, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to Bruce. I'm talking to Carrie. I'm talking to you guys. And I had great relationships with you guys early on. And, and so that, that I was comfortable doing that. Um, you know, and then when the elbow, I, I missed 99 because of the elbow, that is just what it was, right? Like I, I had answers for that. I've torn it. I've got to wait for it to heal. Boom, come back. And it's great. And I never had an issue with the elbow again. And then at the end of 2004 and then all of 2000 and then 2005, when the shoulder thing started happening, uh, the frustrating part was when it happens the first time, first time dealing with the shoulder, I'm like, okay, I don't know what this is. I feel like I'm going to be able to come back from this. I'll, you know, give you guys the information I have. I'm going to be okay. 
because that's what I'm telling myself. Um, but at the point, I mean, I had no idea what was in what was in in front of me. I had no idea I was going to ride this roller coaster for two years, you know, two seasons of not having answers and and uh, and not being able to go out and compete and do my job. So the frustrating part was getting the questions every day, which I didn't have the answers to, you know, and, and I can't answer questions. I don't know the answers to it. I know that everybody wants to know. And, but I'm dealing with that as a player of, am I ever going to throw again? You know, and, and what's going on? I've gone to multiple doctors. I had a clean out surgery that was supposed to fix all this stuff. I come back, I'm throwing, I make some rehab starts. I get to the big, back to the big leagues. I make five, four or five starts. And then it just shuts down again and I can't use it. Now I've got to go and tell Dusty that I can't, I can't go. And then now I'm on the DL again. Now it's just, it was a roller coaster that I don't think anyone could be prepared for. Um, but the daily questions and the article, I mean, I remember I came out here one day on an off day. I came out to Wrigley to play catch to see where I was at, see how it was going to feel. It was in the middle of this whole mess. And the, and the clubhouse is closed. There was no media here. And I go out to start throwing and there's helicopters over Wrigley <laughs> field shooting me playing catch. And it's on the news that night about he's out throwing. And it's like, I'm just trying to sneak in and just see for myself. I don't have answers for the city. I don't have answers for the reporters. I don't even have answers for my team or myself. So um, I think that the frustrating, the most frustrating part was is the questions that needed to be answered. I didn't have the answers to, and I didn't know myself, you know, and, and from a, from an athlete standpoint, I'm more worried about my livelihood and how I'm going to continue to go out. If I'm ever going to go out and be able to do my job. again. Tell that miracle story about you told me you were getting ready to retire. You were going yeah. to go out and give one more time. To me, that's one of the more fascinating stories I've ever heard from an athlete. Yeah. So I was, I, I'd gone through it. The clean out surgery was supposed to be fix everything up, take some debris out and, and good. Actually my last start before I, I shut it down in, uh, maybe it was Oh four. I shut it down. I threw a complete game shutout and then I shut it down because we were eliminated from the playoffs. So I shut it down to go get a clean out of the shoulder. And I remember driving to the doctor and, getting ready to have surgery. And I turned to my wife and I was like, I just threw two days ago, I just threw a complete game shutout. What am I doing? Uh, but I knew what I had been dealing with and, that, and they showed there's some debris in there. So there was obviously some discomfort, something was going on. So they cleaned it out and everything was fine. And, um, you know, I start the rehab process thinking I'm gonna be ready for spring training. Well, that doesn't happen. I get to spring training, I'm not ready. Arm still, something's not right in there. I try to do the throwing program that I was supposed to do. Something's not right. I don't break with the team. Then I battle that all season long, up and down, up and down. Some days you come in, you throw, it feels great. You come back three days later, you can't, you know, throw it 10 feet and it's just shooting pain. So going back and forth with doctors for, you know, that whole season and then going into 2006 thinking, all right, I've got to train. I, I lost a bunch of weight. I'm, I'm getting back. I'm in, I'm in shape. I can't be in any better shape than I'm in, than I am now. I'm doing all the work to strengthen the shoulder, do all the things I'm supposed to do. And then some, and then 2006 rolls around and I'm not ready again, you know? And so it just was a frustrating thing. So I, I was, I didn't break camp in 2000. Well, we came back even to 2007. Like I didn't break camp. I thought I was definitely going to be breaking camp in 2007. Didn't break camp 2007. Stayed back in Arizona with my uh, therapist, Brett Fisher, who had been with me for, I'd been with him for two, two and a half years at this point now. And uh, we're just trying everything we can. We're talking to the doctor. We went and saw it and we got another opinion. And um, I think that was in 2006 when I got another opinion up in New York, put me in the tube, arm up the whole thing. They're like, you got an 80% tear in your cuff. And I'm like, how, 
how did I do that rehabbing? Like I just had to clean out. There was no tear. How did I, how did I get a tear in my, in my, an 80% tear in my cuff rehabbing? And so no answers, no answers. And the only thing that he said, he's like, listen, there's been, there's been a guy or two that have had this surgery to fix this. And, uh, Ramon Martinez was one of them. And, and Pedro, I reached out to Pedro to talk to him about, you know, meeting with his brother and talking about whether I should have this surgery or not. Cause he did it. He came back for a part of the season and then he had to retire. So came to the conclusion. I wasn't going to have this surgery. I was going to rehab it. So I was in Arizona with Brett Fisher, rehabbing, 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 trying to strengthen this thing, doing throwing programs. And it was the same thing. Like, right. Terrible for three or four days. And then all of a sudden I'm throwing the ball 120 feet on a deadline and feeling great. I'm like, all right, I'm going to, I can pitch tomorrow. And then you come in the next day and it's like, I can't lift my arm. So we, we did this. And so finally I was coming back to, to Wrigley on, on the weekends, just to see the guys be around them, see, meet the trainers, sit, to tell them where I'm at, show them strength and do all that stuff and check in. And kind of got tired at that point. It was just, it was hard to come here and see the guys and then have to go back to Arizona and rehab and with no answers in sight, no end in sight. So I'd gotten fed up with that in 2007 after, after they broke camp and I was back there and it's kind of got fed up with doing that. So I just told, I came in one day and uh, to, to therapy and I told, I told Brett, my therapist, I said, listen, we're not, we're not going to warm it up. I don't want to do any stem. I don't want to do any heat, grab a, grab a glove. Let's go in the back alley and behind the building. And I want to throw, and I'm going to throw until I blow this thing completely out so I can stop riding this roller coaster and I'll know for sure. He's like, all right. So we went out to play catch. It was one of those days where I was throwing it 90 feet, 100 feet on a deadline. Felt great. He, and he's just like, he's sitting there like, what is happening? And uh, I actually, before I went through, I said, I'm going to call Jim Hendry and tell him I'm going to retire today, but let's go throw first so I don't have any doubts. So we went and threw, felt great. Came back in. He's like, you calling him? I was like, I'll call him tomorrow when I can't lift my arm. So I went home, went to bed, came back the next morning. I was like, he's like, how you feeling? I go, feels pretty good. Uh, no heat, no nothing. Let's go do it again. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta know. And then, so the second day I was at 120 feet throwing it on a line, felt awesome. And uh, I was like, all right, well, I'll call him tomorrow. And I did that for two weeks, three weeks. And then finally I called him and I was like, Hey, I think I'm ready for a rehab start. And then, uh, but I'm not going to start. I think I need to go get ready to come out of the pen. I don't think I can, we had already gone down the rehab start and I'd gotten to the 62 pitches and it shut down. And then I had a sim game in Cleveland in 2006 where I got to 64 pitches and then it shut down. So I couldn't throw more than 65 pitches. And so I had knew, I'd known that going in. And so then I said, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to come out of the pen if you got room for a guy in the pen, but let me go out and start, start going to these affiliates and, and getting some innings in and, and uh, we'll see where we go from there. And then uh, that was at the end of 2007, I came for the last, made it back up to the big leagues for the last couple of months and uh, got into the postseason that year, got an appearance in the postseason and out in Arizona. And I think that was the first time they, I hit 98 again on the radar gun. And, and then, uh, you know, I, Crossed my fingers for the next seven years every day, whether it was something was going to blow out or not, but won the closers job in 08 and then went from there. And so I had another seven years and out of the pen of, um, I got, was able to get some use out of it. Yeah. So I was, I was 20 minutes away from retiring in 2007. 
That's a crazy story. I didn't realize, you know, how close you were to retirement, Carrie. And we'll have more with the Cubs icon soon. But first, a quick message from our sponsor. At Wintrust, we know true fans show their team pride every chance they get. With Cubs checking, you'll score a Cubs debit card so you can show your support every time you pay. Open today at Wintrust.com slash Cubs Weekly. $100 required to open. Member FDIC. Carrie, like in terms of like the happier moments, I mean, was that one of the happier moments of your career being 15, 20 minutes away from retiring or, you know, we talk about the, the 20 strikeout game, or I know you talked on that icons of the Ivy show we did uh, about that 2003 home run, you know, in the NLCS, like, uh, was it moments like this where you sent like Wrigley into euphoria and the NLCS or pitching the playoffs, 20 strikeouts, whatever it is, what stands out to you as your favorite moment or favorite moments throughout your career? Yeah, well, this one was, there's two things to this one, right? Like I told, I, I'd had kids at this point and, and I had a son and I was like, you know what? During this two, two and a half year stretch of me not playing, I'm like, he's, he's never going to see me. He's never going to know what I did. He's never going to be able to see me on the field. Like that's, so my whole rehab process was strictly to be able to get back to the big leagues. And so my son could see it, you know, and, and, uh, and obviously I love the game and I wanted to be back out there, but that was a, that was a huge goal for me. And then on top of that, you look at the numbers and I'm like, I was stuck on 1,299 strikeouts. And I'm like, I'm going to be stuck. I mean, one more, I couldn't get to 1,300. And so, you know, I did all that rehab and went through that whole process. And my first game back, I got a strikeout. Justin was at the game and I was able to take number 13 to my wife and say, I finally got, I finally got the 1,300. But uh, I ended up obviously getting more than that. But um, during the two-year stretch of not knowing what was going to happen, it was, my son's never going to see this. I'm never going to be able to be out there on the field while he's in the stands and I'm going to be stuck on 1299. So those were, those were motivators for me. Um, but he was certainly the biggest motivator for me to, to, to not quit on it and to, and to not give up. But so there's, there's milestones throughout my career that I look back on and were great. Of course, the 20 strikeout game, the home run game seven, but I always took pride in the fact that, you know, until I came back from the Yankees, I was, I spent 10 years with the Cubs and I was in the, postseason four times you know and so from an organization that didn't have much postseason luck or even ever get there for a long long time I was able to say that you know I, I went to the postseason four times as a cub and we didn't get it done obviously but um, those those are the reasons we play the game right like that's to get into the get in the postseason with a chance to win the world series so um, I took pride in those years where we where we got to the postseason when you uh, look back on your career Kerry, um... Who are some of the more influential guys in initially and, and throughout your career as far as uh, people that made a difference for you, uh, either on the field, off, or both? Yeah, so, I mean, there's coaches, right? There's coaches throughout every level. Um, I think early on I had, um, you know, Oscar Acosta as a, as a pitching coach that really sticks out for me. Um, I had him early and had him in rookie ball and I uh, was terrified of this man for a couple of years. And then ended we all up were. Yeah. yeah. And then ended up being, you know, getting really close with him and his family and, and, uh, and really, really understanding what he was all about and, and how he was able to get the best out of me. Um, unfortunately he passed away and we didn't, didn't get to spend a more time with him, but he was certainly at the top of the list, uh, from a coaching standpoint, Marty Demerit was another guy that I, I got called up from double a and I was a mess. Got called up to triple a and just mechanically was a mess. And, he was able to really simplify stuff and, and uh, he just had a way of getting his message across to guys. And um, so I, I put Marty Demerit at the top of that list as well, as far as pitching coaches early on. 
Um, and then get into the big leagues. It's, it's, it becomes a lot of teammates, right? You have, you have great relationships. I mean, Phil Regan was my first pitching coach. So I really listened to a lot of things he said. Riggleman was my first manager. So I, I really, I've got a spot for those guys that, that um, helped kind of jumpstart and get my career going. Um, you know, and then after that, it's, you know, managers wise, it's, you know, I, Dusty Baker for me is still a manager that got the best out of me and, and, and pushed us and, and uh, understood and not only on the field stuff, right? Like he was a, played a big part in my, in my off the field stuff with Sarah and, and having kids and marriage and all of those things. So he was more of a father figure as, as he was a manager and on the field stuff. So I, I've got a special place in my heart for Dusty and, and uh, you know, but there's, there's players, right? Like I, I show up in the big leagues and I got Kevin Tappan. He's my locker mate. And, and uh, obviously I think they did that for a reason. They didn't stick me next to Grace. Love Grace too. <laughs> Love Grace too. But they didn't stick me next to him when I first showed up. They stuck me next to Tappany. And, and so I was able to watch him handle the media and handle good starts and bad starts and just the way he carried himself. And we had conversations just by being locker mates. So I think Tappany had a big, uh, a big role in my development early on. And I uh, got a chance to play with guys like Rick Aguilera and, and see how he carried himself. And, and so I, I think of those guys. And then as the career goes on, you just, you know, I had great teammates. I don't think there's a teammate I had that I didn't like or get along with or, or at least, re, you know, respect and, and, and what they do and what they, what they did for the organization and for the team and how they made us better. Um, you know, as far as teammates go, like great teammates is, I still keep in contact with Glennon Rush. He's one of my favorite teammates. He's hilarious, great guy. Uh, journeyman um, Paul Bacco is a catcher of mine that I, I still keep in contact with I'm, I mean I, I enjoyed playing with Kent Marker and Mark DeRosa these guys were just great I mean DeRosa's energy that he brought you see him on TV now he's, he was the same he hasn't changed a bit he's just got energy he's fun to be around loves the game um, so guys like that and and um, you know I could go on and list I'm sure I'm missing a bunch but I, I could list tons of guys and just the respect of guys the way they play the game right Moises Salou was a guy for me that just was a just a, the definition of a gamer, you know, and, and uh, being able to see him do his stuff daily on a daily basis and and go about his work and, and you know his his desire to win and compete and go out there and be the best every day was was uh, was fun to watch and, and I was honored to be around that. So uh, there's a list of guys all the way from from beginning to end and you know towards the end of your career you become one of those guys for the next generation and the younger guys. So I had I had good examples of how to be. Um, a veteran player by the veterans that were were there when I was a young player. And one of those guys too, Kerry, that you got to play with, Derek Lee, for a while. And I know, like you just kind of detailed some of your rehab and injuries and stuff through 2005. But you did get to see some of that and, and play alongside Derek as he was going through this amazing, like, special season. I'm just curious, like, your perspective on that year. And you know, it was like this incredible campaign that ranks as one of the best in Cubs history. What did you see out of Derek? What kind of led to like that special season and how was it to watch a, a guy just be in a groove all year like that? Yeah. I mean, I think for D, I think it was just his consistency, right? Like he was always in the same mood. He was, he was just as even killed as they come, but the work he put in, right? Like the work he put, he was always a, he was a great hitter when we got him. He was a great player. He was obviously one of the best first base from the games seen, you know, he, he, he was great, but I think work him working on the inside pitch, I think changed changed him right being able to get the ball inside um you know he was always great going the other way getting his arms extended but i think when he developed the ability to turn on that pitch inside that changed the game for him and obviously having ramirez hit behind him helps 
Um, but those were, those were seasons that we just kind of get wrapped up in. Like as a player, you're like, Oh, we're down by four, but okay. We've got, we've got D Lee, we've got Ramirez, we've got Sammy coming up this inning. We're going to put a two or three or four spot on these guys. And, and it just felt that way. And, and because they did it all the time, you know? And so we had, usually you have a, when you have a good team, you have a lineup where there's like, okay, if we can get so-and-so up in this, in this situation, I feel good about it. But we had three or four guys that could be up in that. We would like, all right, he's, yeah, let's, any of those guys, if they get up in a situation where the game's on the line or we need a big, the big inning, we feel really confident that they're going to get it done because they did. And so being part of those seasons and being part of just watching Dealey come in and do his work and do his business and, and fun guy, great guy. I love him. Still keep in contact with him and his family. They've been a huge part of my life off the field, post career. Um, but just the consistency he showed as a professional day in and day out, um, you know, and there's guys that do that, but he was just, he was our rock over there at first base and in the clubhouse. Post Cub career, initially, you go to Cleveland. You come back to Wrigley Field, 2008. What was that experience like? What was it like to put on a different uniform? It was horrible. I didn't want to do it. I mean, I was. I went to dinner with Jim Hendry thinking I was getting ready to, he was going to give me an extension after I just saved 34, whatever games I saved. And I was like, I would be the closer for a few years. This is awesome. Um, and we sat down and I, they set the waters down and then we didn't even order yet. And he's like, all right, so we're not going to give you, you're not going to, we're not going to, we don't have a deal for you. And I'm like, ah, kind of gut punch. And I'm like, all right, well, I don't need a three-year deal. How about a one-year deal? And he's like, ah. And so I was like, okay. I mean, it was delivered a little better than that, but not much. And, uh, and I, so, so now I'm scrambling to find a team. So I'm like, you know, I'm in Chicago. I'm, I live in Chicago. My family's here. I don't really want to drag them across the country and, and move and do that. I'm like, I love Chicago. That's all I know. So, um, you know, it became a scramble. Like I call Milwaukee and, you know, they're, you guys need a closer. They did, but they ended up signing Gagne for one year instead. So that was gone. And then, then this becomes who's going to compete and how close can I be to home to come on, come home on off days and the family can come back and forth for home stands. And, and so Cleveland was, was in a good spot the year before and they had a great organization and, and felt really good about that move. And, um, got to Cleveland and we started the season off like three and 20 or something ridiculous like that. And they started yards dumping guys like DeRose said, actually come over that year too. So I was there with him and, um, you know, Cliff Lee was still there and, uh, there was, uh, Santana was a young player. So he was just coming up, but Victor Martinez was there. And so these guys, Hafner and Grady Sizemore and, I'm like, all right, we got, we got, we got an offense. We got a team. These guys competed. They got really close the year before. This is going to be fun. And we got off to such a horrible start. And, um, you know, they started dumping guys. And next thing you know, Cliff Lee is gone. Victor Martinez is gone. And, you know, I'm Dero gets, DeRosa gets, gets sent off somewhere else. And I'm looking around the clubhouse and it's like me and the rebuild team. And, it, and then, so for me, it wasn't, it wasn't a great, the greatest experience. Um, I do love Cleveland. I love the stadium. But it was it was bad for me, mainly because we were bad. We didn't put it. We didn't do what we were supposed to do. And we didn't put the number. We didn't put the wins in the column. And um, and so it was time for them to make a decision as an organization. They made the decision. And um, needless to say, I didn't get too many save opportunities, consistent ones anyway. So saving a game every nine or 10 days doesn't do well for a closer and its consistency. So I honestly thought 
you know, I was going to have to retire after Cleveland just because the numbers were going to be so bad, um, you know, and, and, uh, and who was going to take a chance on that, those, those numbers on a guy that's got 12, you know, 12 year veteran that's, that's hanging on. So uh, the second year of that two year contract in Cleveland, um, the Yankees picked me up at the deadline. And, uh, and I probably, for the Yankees, I probably had the best 27 inning stretch of my career for those guys coming out of the fence, setting up for Mariano. So it kind of researched me a little bit. And then, um, you know, ultimately you get drafted by a team and that you want to stay there forever and play your whole career there. And, and that's just not the way the game works anymore. So I uh, made a couple little pit stops, but knew that, you know, I was, my time was getting towards the end of my career and, and um, you know, wanted to finish at home. Kerry, I, I know Cubs fans, I'm sure, played such a huge role. You talked about how much you love Chicago. But, you know, I, I think back to, like, before you signed with the Cubs again, you know, I think it was, like, two one-year deals. But, like, that January of 2012 Cubs convention, Pat Hughes announces your name, like, the top nearly blows off the building, right? And, you know, you returned in 2009 with Cleveland and actually pitched at Wrigley Field. And I'm just curious, like, what – what was your perspective of Cubs fans? How did they make you feel in moments like that, returning as a, as a visiting team or that Cubs convention? Like, what was that like with this fan base? Yeah, I mean, it's and everybody says their fans are the best and the greatest, right? Like, everybody loves their fan base. And, and the Cubs fans are just different. And even playing for the Yankees and, and even Cleveland, right, and other organizations that's been around for years has great history. It's just different. I mean, they travel. Yankee fans travel, too, but it's it's a different kind of – feeling you get like listen I was a guy that that had huge expectations right early in my career a ton of injuries and the, and and not only was I dealing with all that stuff the fans had to deal with it right like when's it going to happen we're tired of hearing about this guy I get, I get that way now when I read players from the Bears that are like I'm all right is this guy hurt again I catch myself doing that and like I was that guy for two and a half years <laughs> um but they don't quit on you right like if you show them that you care and you don't make excuses. And that was one thing I never did. I never made an excuse for how bad I did or the fact that I couldn't get out there. I just don't make excuses. These are real hardworking people here in Chicago. They're Midwestern. They're, they're great people. And, and they all have your back. And, and they did. They never quit on me. I'm sure there were a few people that did, but there's, they never quit on me as a fan base. And, and um, you know, I think that's a huge reason of why we stayed here and why I, start a foundation that does work in the city and, and give back. And, and I think a lot of that plays into it too, right? Like I think they see their players being responsible off the field and, and, and giving back and doing things. And I love to see more players doing that nowadays. Um, I think it's, I think it's important. And, uh, but I think it also, it sets that sets it in stone that, that you're part of their family, part of their organization, part of their town, part of their city. And, and so Chicago had been great to me from the day I got drafted until till today right like I still get people to come up and and I was a part of I was a part of memories for 10 12 years and summers for people like part of their part of their growing up part of their I was there for everyone for a whole section of people I was there for their 20s I was I was part of their memories of their whole all of their 20s or their teens or their 30s right like that was a big part of that so I understand that as a player and being you know fortunate enough to stay in a, in a town and for a team for as long as I did and and so I, I don't take that for granted and I understand that. So I, I think there's a good relationship between, between me and the fans. And it's just, they're, they're just different. They just, they travel, they don't quit on you. They don't give up. I mean, they had a super long year of, or a long stretch of not winning and they still are committed to their Cubs. So it's a, it's a special relationship. What was the thought process when the Cubs were winning in 16 
it was wire to wire. It just seemed it was going to be fate that they were going to win the World Series. But again, it hadn't happened for 108 years. So your perspective as a former star cub player and as a fan now with you and your family in 2016. Yeah, so I I I didn't miss a playoff game, but from from the start it was holy cow, this team's this team's really good. You know, this team is there's different. It's something different about it and I think Joe had a big part to do with that, right? I think the the mindset he put in these players early as soon as he got here. Uh, and you I think that was a difference that I saw of especially when they got down the stretch and we're getting into the postseason run, right? Like they're, they didn't seem to feel that pressure, you know? And I think bringing in certain veteran guys, like you bring Lackey in with that experience, you bring, you've got John Lester here, you've got Zobris, these guys that are solid, obviously top of the line players, but also the, the experience and the, and the calmness they can bring to a situation like that, like that with a clubhouse full of young guys, right? Super young guys. And I think some of that young that young energy uh, revitalized the older guys and, and energized them. But I think also it, they were too, like Grace used to say it to me all the time. He's like, he's too young and too dumb to know any different, right? So I think there's a part of that, right? That, that, that plays into it. They're, they think they're invincible. They think they're not gonna lose. And that's kind of what you need to do when you take the field. You need to feel like you're not gonna lose. Like I'm good enough, we're good enough to beat any team. And when you have that in your mind before the game starts, I mean, that's half the battle. And then your talent goes out and takes care of the rest. So I, I really think that it was just a perfect storm of getting obviously super talented young players and bringing in those, those key veteran guys. But I think Joe, Joe's leadership during that and, and the way he was able to deflect all that as much media attention towards him as he could to keep it off the young players and to keep, it, keep the pressure off his team. Um, I think they gelled so well together and had just the perfect mix of young and, and old. And, and uh, it was fun to watch. And I, I didn't miss a playoff game. I went to everyone on the road. I went to all of them at home. And it was uh, as exciting as I possibly could imagine any playoff run or World Series without being on the field. What was the conversation like during your career about this uh, elephant in the room and the 100 years of no World Series and no uh you know, extended playoffs. What was that like? And did this kind of solve all that for everyone? Is was there a feeling for you and maybe some of your former teammates that this was a culmination for everybody, not just that team? Yeah, I mean, I said it when it when the night had happened. Like this is for Ronnie and Billy and 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 Fergie and and Ernie and all these guys that like everyone that ever came to Chicago wanted to be a part of the team that broke the curse. Like we all wanted it, you know. And and the pressure from the when you're losing a hundred games, no one's talking about world series, right? Like that conversation, that word never even came up for the first part of my career. Like we, we made the playoffs in 98 and it was like shocked everybody. We, we won the wild card. We got into the postseason, And then it's like, you know, as a young player, I'm like, Oh, well, we're going to be in the playoffs every year, you know, but you got to see on your chest. So that's, you know, that's probably not as realistic as I <laughs> looking back on it now, but it's, um, yeah, you just you don't hear the talk when you lose 95 games or 100 games. It's like well, World Series, 100 year stretch, whatever. Like it, it doesn't come up, but it comes up on the years where you put together a good, you know, a good run and you get to the postseason. And then for my generation and for the four times I was in the playoffs, it was it starts in August. Is this going to be the year? Is this the team that's going to break the curse? And then, you know, writers do what they what they do. They they put they 
matchup guys, and this is the team. You've got these guys as starters. Your pin's, your pin's solid. You've got a great bench. You start laying it all out. And then, you know, the best thing that, that most of us try to do is not read that stuff because there's enough pressure. We know there's a 100-year drought. Like, we know that as players. That's why a lot of us, if we chose to come here and then get drafted by the team, a lot of guys came over here to be a part of that, right? Not just playing Wrigley Field in front of these fans and do it, but they want to be part of that team that breaks the curse. And, uh, and so that's, that's, that's just the reality. And so I, when I retired, I remember turning to my wife, Sarah, and I was like, you know what? Man, they're going to be good. And if they win it the year I retired, the year after I retire, like, you know, Nomar left Boston and then boom, they won the thing. It's like, I don't want to be Nomar. I don't, I don't want to be the guy that, that tries to play as long as I can for, for a city and a team, try to get it done. And then the year I retire, it's, they go win it. Um, but you still want it to get, you still want it to get done. You still want to do it. And so for them to be able to do that in 2016 and, and still be fresh enough out of the game to enjoy it and know the guys in the clubhouse and played against some of them, played with some of them. It was, uh, it was so special. And again, I do think it's for not just the elite players that came in here, but for all the players that came here and, and, and got close for all of us that got into the postseason three or four times, you know, Zambrano, like these, all these guys, we all wanted to win prior and Clement, you know, all these guys that ever came in, came into this organization, we, we, we thought we were going to be the team to do it, especially on the years where we, we had good teams and we, we had all the pieces there. Um, you know, I still think, you know, people ask me which was the best team I played on 2003 or 2008, two different teams. Obviously I was in two different roles. Um, and it's hard for me to say, like, I still think, I still think both of those teams were better teams and should have, should have, could have won, should have won. You know, obviously, I don't think we go into to L.A. in 2008 and get swept. I don't and I don't I didn't see that coming. 2007. I didn't see that coming. 2003. We know what happened there that I still think we're the better team. Whoever wins that game beats the Yankees. I still I still believe that. And that's what happened with the Marlins. But I. Um, yeah, those are the years I look back on. Like, those are the two years, 2003, 2008. Those are the two years that it could have been our our group of guys that got it done and we just didn't. How does Kerry Wood watch games? Like you're saying in 2016, like, how do you, how are you as a fan? Are you the guy that like gets up and screams and yells for the Cubs or, you know, are you like standing all the time? Or are you like calm, cool, collected, your former player, you understand what's going on, especially with, like you said, everything at stake in the 2016 world series. Yeah. I, I watch it. Like I was sitting in the dugout. I'm looking at, pitch counts I'm looking at the inning I'm looking in the pen I'm looking to see who's available who's not so in the in the world series game when when the rain delay happens you know my wife's freaking out and everybody around me's freaking out and they're grabbing me and they're trying to like what's gonna oh my god that just happened you know it a home run to tie it I'm like hold on a second and I'm thinking I'm like all right their pen is shot right their pen is done they're gonna have to bring in we've got so-and-so so-and-so and -and so-and-so coming up and you know, I knew who we still had in the pen. And so I'm like, I don't feel bad. I'm not panicking about this. I, f- I feel fine about this. Of course, I was the only one in the 60,000 people, Cubs fans that were there that felt fine about it. But, you know, I, and you hear it after the fact of, hey, we're going in and talking and calming everybody down during that little rain delay. But uh, just to be, a, to be able to be in that room and understand what that's, that situation's like. Um, I watch it as, a, as an ex-player as I'm trying to think ahead and and – look at situations and scenarios and um i did hold my breath i was standing outside the clubhouse door when they hit the ground ball to bryant and i saw his foot 
saw his foot go live and I'm like, oh, I said it out loud. I was like, oh no, something. <laughs> and you know, it was a high throw, Rizzo got it, but it's, um, that was about the only panicked moment I had throughout the playoffs um, was when his foot slipped. As we wrap up, I'm, uh, I thank you for, for Tony and myself and all the fans that were listening to this. Um, but you touched on this earlier and if you could just briefly touch on it again, the importance of being a Chicagoan and being here now going on 25 years. Uh, that really resonates to me as a lifetime Chicagoan, a lot of other people as well. And uh, just the meaning for you and Sarah and the family of living in Chicago. Yeah, I mean, again, it's just, I got drafted at 17 and I was on the radar for people that I hadn't even met yet here in Chicago, right? Everybody, you fo they follow their cubs. They know the draft, they know who's coming. You know, I spent two years in the minor leagues and people had heard about me already for two years that I was completely unaware of, right? So I, even before I got here, people knew me. So by the time I got here, I had a fan base. It was kind of waiting. There were people that were waiting for me to get here. And, and, and for a young player coming in, that's like, holy cow, like, you don't even, you can't even comprehend how that, how that happened. So um, from day one to till now, it's just been, it's been nothing but support. And, you know, there's, yes, we could, we could, I could go live anywhere, but I don't have, I don't have anywhere else I'd want to be. I think my family is, is, is here. They love it here. They've grown up here. My kids have grown up here. My wife's from here. Uh, I feel like I'm, I'm a Chicagoan. They've taken me in and, and made me one of their own. And again, through all the, through all the highs and all the lows, it, it, they never wavered. And, and I think that's what I tried to be as a player through the highs and lows. I tried to stay even keel and not waver and understand when I was doing great and had the highs and was, and, and, and uh, the career was going like this. I tried to stay the same person. And then when it got low and things were terrible and I couldn't go out and play and I was injured and all that stuff, I still tried to stay as even keel as I could because that's how Chicago is. They don't, they don't ride the highs and lows. They stay with you and they stay consistent and, and, and they've been that way with me and my family since day one. So this is, this is home and, and uh, the city's given me and my family so much that, um, you know, I feel like it's, it's, it's time for us to get back and, and do what we can in the city and, and stay here and be a huge part of it. Well, Kerry, thank you so much for all the time and the stories and insight. We really appreciate you stopping by the Cubs Weekly Podcast here. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always great to, to tell stories and some things come out of my mouth and I realize I hadn't even talked about that in years. So it's nice to, to see you guys and catch up and, and share some stuff. So thanks for having me. No problem. All right, that'll do it for this edition of the Cubs Weekly Podcast presented by Wintrust. Don't forget to download and subscribe to the pod on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Check us out in video form on the Marquee Sports Network app and YouTube. For Bruce and Kerry, I'm Tony Andraki signing off. Catch you guys next week.